One of the very first questions you need to ask whenever you study a narrative text like this one is quite simply, what is the text? Where does it begin and where does it end? Whenever you study narrative texts such as this one, you have to think through where rightly should I understand the beginning of the narrative and where does it end? And it's perhaps made more difficult for us who are so used to being in New Testament epistles where we see the argument borne out over oftentimes really just a few verses. We see in the New Testament epistles the meaning, the point of a text evidenced through a paragraph, just a few verses. And we're used to that, and we tend to bring that kind of lens across to Old Testament narrative texts. And so our tendency is often to zoom in with something of a microscope and to read smaller portions of text out of their proper context. And when we do that, we can miss the point. We don't quite grasp the meaning. And actually, we get ourselves into all manner of issues as we start to put a strain on just a few verses that they were never meant to bear up under. Now, if you think about the first few verses of chapter 18, verses 1 through 15 that we read earlier this morning, what we read there is something called an annunciation scene. An annunciation scene is very simply the announcement of a forthcoming birth. There are many of them through the Bible. The Lord or a messenger, an angel, comes and promises of a future child. What's interesting about the annunciation scenes throughout the Old Testament is that after the promise has been made, very shortly thereafter, the child is born. So we read of these annunciation scenes in Judges and Samuel and Kings, and every time a promise is made, and very shortly after, the baby arrives, the promise reaches its fulfillment. What is interesting about this annunciation scene in Genesis is that the baby doesn't come until three chapters later. The promise is made in 1 through 15 of chapter 18. It's not until we get to chapter 21 that we read, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son. So what we see is that the Annunciation scene, the promise of a child and its fulfillment, are intentionally separated, and they form a frame around three other narratives. Three chapters of Scripture are framed by the Annunciation scene, the promise, and its fulfillment in 21. That simple observation is so important because it teaches us, it instructs us to read 18, 19, and 20 in light of the promise of a child. There's something going on in these narratives. They're not a strange intrusion that bears no connection to the broader context. They are in some way related 
to God's promise to Sarah that she will bear a child. Chapter verse 14 of chapter 18 drives the narrative forward as God asks the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, if you're ever wondering what question you ought to be asking of a text, and God asks a question, it's a pretty good clue that that's the question you should be asking. God asks this question. It is the question that he intends for us to ask immediately within its context. Is it too hard for God to cause Sarah to conceive and bear a child? And the answer, obviously, is no. But within the broader context of Genesis, that question shows that there's so much more at stake. Can God fulfill his promises in accordance with his purposes? Can God fulfill his plan in the way that he said he would? All the way back in chapter 12, he made some promises to Abraham and said, I will give to you a land, a seed, that is a a lineage, a heritage, and blessing to the nations. All of the nations will be blessed through you. That's the threefold nature of God's promises to Abraham, land, seed, and blessing. And as he asked, God says, is anything too difficult for me to accomplish in the broader context of Genesis, the question being asked, in essence, is whether God truly can fulfill his promises to Abraham, land and seed and blessing, in the way that he said he would. Now, theologically, we would say, of course it's not too hard. Of course God can fulfill his promises in the way that he said he would. But in order that we would grasp hold of that truth in order that we would live by it, in order that it would elicit us to worship God and it would direct our steps, we would take ownership of our belief in God's power to fulfill his promises exactly as he said he would. Moses then gives us three narratives wherein we see God eliminating every other possibility. So three narratives sit in the middle of the promise and fulfillment of the child. Each one, God eliminates the possibility of his plan progressing by another means. A narrative that concerns a land named Sodom. A narrative that concerns a line, namely Lot's. And a narrative that concerns Abraham lying to a foreign king God frustrates his efforts with him so that we would see God will fulfill his promises in exactly the way that he has intended. And the governing metric all the way through is that of righteousness. God's concern throughout the book of Genesis and indeed throughout the book of the Bible is for righteousness and he shows us his plan will not progress through the unrighteous. Where there is unrighteousness, God is not pleased and he is not going to advance his redemptive purposes through the wicked. Rather, he is pleased to progress his plans through the upright. And so this morning, I want to look at just the first two of those three narratives. The story of a city called Sodom 
and the sorry tale of Lot and his daughters. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? By no means. But understand, he will advance his plan through the righteous. The unrighteous will bear the consequences of their sin. Beginning then with Sodom. Why is this city of any interest to us anyway? The answer is all the way back in chapter 13, Lot went to dwell there. You probably know the narrative, and again, it is one that we are prone to take out of context and to misinterpret when Abraham looks at Lot and says, our people are too numerous to dwell together, so let us separate, and I'll go this way, and you go this way, or vice versa, and it will be well for us, and so we look at that narrative, and within the great evangelical institution that is the quiet time, we're so desperate to get application from it, that we say, I think God wants me to be generous. Certainly he does, but that's not the point of the text. You see, Abraham is in the promised land. God has shown him the boundaries of the promised land. And Abraham says, we have a problem on our hands. We are too numerous to be together. So I'll go this way. And he looks to his left, and that would be the north of the promised land. I'll go up there. And you go to the south, and it will work out. We'll resolve the tension between our two tribes. Or I'll go south. I don't mind. I'll stay in the promised land, but I'll go this way. And you go up that way, and the problem will be resolved. And Lot chooses neither option. Rather, he looks across the boundaries. He looks out of the promised land to a city called Sodom. And he says, I'm going to go over there. Because we're told in the text in chapter 13, it was pleasing to the eyes. It looked like the garden of the Lord. And so what we see back in chapter 13 is that Lot is failing to trust the Lord. Lot shows himself in that moment to be one who does not trust the Lord. Up until that point, it could have been that Lot was the heir of Abraham. Abraham doesn't have a son at that point. Lot is his nephew it is reasonable to expect that Abraham would even adopt Lot to make him his heir. But then it comes to chapter 13, and we see Lot willing to go against the Lord's promises, to fail to trust him, and to leave the promised land for Sodom. Now, we don't read a whole lot more about Lot or Sodom thereafter until we get to chapter 18. <clears throat> God has heard a cry coming up from this city. And in particular, there is an unrighteous cry coming up. Verse 20. The sin in Sodom is very grave. God wants to know whether the outcry that he has heard matches with the intentions, the actions on the ground. So he's going to go and visit that city. And his concern is righteousness. We see that especially because he has said, shall I hide from, what I, from Abraham what I'm about to do because I've chosen him, verse 19, to be righteous, that he would command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord and do righteousness and justice. That is his concern. This is the purposes for which he has chosen Abraham and entered into a covenant with him. 
So right at the very beginning of the narrative, we get a sharp juxtaposition between righteousness and unrighteousness. That is going to be the governing metric by which we understand the way in which the Lord deals with Sodom. And Abraham pleads. Abraham objects. He says, God, will you really do this? What if there are some righteous people in the city? Again, it's a well-known narrative if you read it without any acknowledgement of the broader context. You'll run into all manner of problems. You'll conclude, I think the Bible teaches me to bargain with God. I'm to go back and forth in my prayer life and see where the, the line falls between his will and what is not his will. That's not the point of the text. As Abraham keeps going back to the Lord and interceding on behalf of Sodom, he's simply showing himself to be a righteous man. He even comes to the Lord and appeals to the Lord's character. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He's simply praying to the Lord and asking that the Lord would act in accordance with his holy character. And therefore, if there is one righteous person in this city, you can't destroy it. Because it runs contrary to your character. You see, if you really want to get some application from this text, Abraham's interceding for Sodom, it is very simply this. You can dishonor the Lord greatly in your prayer life by praying prayers that do not accord with the character of God. That's your point of application. You honor the Lord greatly in prayers. How? By simply asking requests that accord with the holy character of God. And if they do not, do not bring them before God. Abraham shows himself in his interceding to be a righteous man. And it is a suspense-filled scene. God has announced that he's going visiting this wicked city, and now we wonder what will come of them, and then it is interrupted as Abraham intercedes in their suspense, and as the number decreases, 50, 40, 30, 20, our minds start to move towards Lot. The number is going down, and we're acknowledging back in chapter 13, isn't the place, this the place that Lot went to dwell in? And so we begin to think, what is going to become of Lot and his family? And then chapter 19, two angels come to visit. Notice the correspondence between the beginning of 19 and the beginning of 18. They are intentionally mirror images of one another. Two scenes of hosting. Abraham receives these men at his tent and he hosts them very well. Lot receives these angels and he hosts them. Now there are differences. Abraham takes the calf and serves them milk and waits for them, stands by them. Lot's efforts of hosting are we might say less civilized. He simply makes them some unleavened bread. He's quite hurried. It's understated. Now, I don't want to focus too much on Lot right now. I don't think he is the focus of the narrative at this point. He will be later on in the chapter. At this point, the focus is on the men of Sodom 
but we might observe very simply and tentatively, even here in the first few verses of chapter 19, Lot is perhaps showing himself to be a product of his circumstances. He made the decision many years ago to go and dwell in Sodom, the unrighteous city, and it would seem perhaps with his less civilized efforts at hosting, he is now showing the consequences of his decision. In any case, this second hosting scene is preparing us for what we might term a third scene of hospitality. The first with Abraham at the tent, the second with Lot and the angels leading up unto now the third time there's an approach towards a, a dwelling place. The men of Sodom now come to the house. This scene is very, very different to the two prior because they don't seek to be hosted. They do not care to have a meal. They make their intent explicit. Bring out these men that we may know them. And certainly Lot acts righteously as he appeals. Don't do this. Don't do this wickedness. You notice how the narrator does not include any comment to explain to us how wicked their intent was. Moses assumes fully that we understand intuitively the wickedness of their desires. And then it is Lot that stands up and protests and they respond not by acknowledging their sin, but rather by being grieved that they cannot pursue it. And so they say, because you've refused this, we'll do even worse With you. And at that point, the angel announces Sodom will be destroyed. Lot starts to respond. He lingers, but he tells his family, and in particular, he makes mention to his sons in law who respond in verse 14, thinking that Lot is jesting, or could easily be translated. It seemed to his sons-in-law that he was laughing. It's the same verb. The same verb that was used of Sarah when she was told, you're going to have a child. There's an intentional use of this verb both with Sarah and the sons-in-law so that the question that was posed in chapter 18, verse 14, comes again to our minds now. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? By no means. It is not too hard for the Lord to open up the womb of Sarah, nor is it too hard for the Lord to destroy utterly the Sodomites. It is the question that drives the narrative forward, and we see the responses to it, both in the giving of life and the destruction of life. And so Lot escapes. Barely. Barely. His wife looks back. And it's turned into a pillar of salt. All the way through the narrative, there is this motif of seeing. And it's connected again to the idea of righteousness. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Is he righteous or not? He is righteous, so God shows him. He sees what God is about to do. When the men go about their evil intents in Sodom, they are struck with blindness. And now Lot's wife looks back. The ironic use of this motif, her looking back on Sodom, 
then reaps the necessary consequences as she is turned into a pillar of salt. God rains down fire and sulfur on this city, and there is utter, complete destruction. So stand back and observe the narrative that has been etched out through the chapters of Genesis. All the way back in 13, Lot failed to trust the Lord. He looked over the boundaries out of the promised land to Sodom, which appeared to be like Eden. And then in chapter 18, God says, you're going to have a child to Sarah. And she says, will I again have pleasure? Verse 12. That word there has the same root as the word Eden. Will I again be Eden-like? In chapter 19, it is not incidental that the sexual act of their choosing would not produce life. And then the one other woman in the narrative is turned into salt as God rains down sulfur on that city. If you put salt or sulfur on the land, nothing will ever grow there again. The narrative that has been constructed for us is very simply, as God opens the womb of Sarah, he closes the womb of Sodom. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Of course not. But he will progress his plan through the righteous. The unrighteous will bear the consequences of their sin. Now a note about the particular sin in view in Genesis 19. You can read any number of articles, listen to any number of arguments that will tell you the sin in view was not that of homosexuality. Very common today to listen to hear arguments that seek to contend that a homosexual lifestyle is fully compatible with the Christian faith. You can twist the text in any manner that you choose, but you cannot change the text. You can't change what was written. The men are very clear. They want to know the men in the house. That's a relational verb. And the intimation is that they want to know them physically, sexually. They want to have relationships with them. And Lot stands up and says, it is wicked what you intend to do. My concern always for us as a church is that we would be ready and willing to accept the responsibility that comes with living in the age in which we find ourselves. And by that, I mean simply that we are living out our Christian lives within the age called the sexual revolution. As I've mentioned many times before, this is the period of history in which we live. You don't get to decide when you're born. God has placed you here according to his wisdom. He has gifted you faith in Christ. And that means then we have to have answers for the questions that are being asked. The age in which we live is the one in where there is more tampering with changing of distortions of definitions than perhaps ever before in human history, especially within the realm of sexual ethics. 
the normalization of homosexuality, the normalization of promiscuity, the normalization of divorce, the normalization of abortion, the list goes on and on and on. And the argument is that all of these practices are entirely acceptable and ought to be celebrated. And we need to give an answer to the question of why God destroyed Sodom. The question is perhaps made harder for us because of the disassociation that we see in our times between the notion of an overarching authority and the moral imperatives by which we live. This is exactly the issue that we were thinking about last week as we studied the Sermon on the Mount. You must be perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect. And there has to be this connection between an an almighty holy God who will hold men accountable and the imperatives by which we live our lives. The problem is we live in a day where God is no longer in the public conversation. Reasonable arguments ought not to include God. And as soon as you remove any notion of authority, you can now be the one who determines your ethical imperatives. You get to decide what is wrong and what is right the second that you remove any notion of an overarching authority. We see this principle even in the text as Lot stands up and seeks to exert upon them a moral standard. Don't do this wickedness. And they respond laughing at him. He has become the judge. They reject his authority. And the second you reject the notion of authority, you can do whatever you want. You can live however you would choose. That is the time in which we live. And it's perhaps made harder still by one of the most subtle moves that Satan has ever pulled off, that of moving the issue of sexual preference to be a constituent part of our identity. To subtly but surely move over the last... 50, 100 years, the issue of sexual preference to now be understood as a constituent part of what it means to be a human. So that today, regularly, the argument is made that if you do not allow me to pursue the sexual preference of my choosing, you're oppressing me. I don't get to live a normal, ordinary human life. Which is an argument that comes from the pit of hell. Jesus was more fulfilled as a man than anyone. More content, more joy-filled, more human than any of us, and he never once had an intimate relationship with anyone. And so we see the trajectory of history. As one so rightly put it, what happened in Genesis 19 was an aberration in history today It has become a species. We have to accept responsibility for the time in which we live. We need to have answers for the questions that are being asked. To accept responsibility is first and foremost to affirm the reality of a holy God who reigns over the hearts of men and will hold all accountable for their actions. You have to live your life in the public square in such a way that you joyfully submit to an almighty, holy God 
who will hold men accountable for their actions. Don't present your Christianity as a burden. Don't live your life so that the outsider, the stranger, the unbeliever would look at you and conclude it is a burden to submit to God. Live in such a way that your joy is evident to all so that their only rational conclusion is how wonderful it is to submit to the holiness that God demands. How wonderful it must be to get yourself under those ethical imperatives. However much they may not be accepted in society today, look at their joy. Look at their delight. Look how content they are to be there. That is the first responsibility that you have to affirm again the reality of a holy God who reigns sovereign and will hold men accountable for their actions. And then secondly, as you have opportunity to show and to explain how your ethic, your morality is indeed a derivative of your belief. How your ethic, the, the things you do, the things you choose not to do, that all stems from your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not arbitrary, they're not unassociated, there is strong connection between the what you do and the why you do it. There is a reason you live the way you do. Your ethic flows out of your faith, it is not unrelated to it. It's the same principle that we were looking at last week, to look upon Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and to understand the words that he speaks. Do not lust, don't pursue divorce, turn your other cheek, pray for your enemies. And to never probe the reason why he would say those things is to rob yourself of any conviction by which you might live. By God's grace, you might follow them for a period. You might show yourself to be obedient for a time. But when the pressure comes, who's to say you won't choose another path? Understand that everything God commands of you in his word is there for a reason. Every imperative that he places on your life flows out of his holy character. There is a plan that he has put in place and he is guiding your every step in accordance with that plan. Your obedience to the ethical commands of Scripture are, in essence, obedience to the overarching plan. Connect your life with redemptive history and see how one flows out of the other. There is a plan that God established in the first few chapters of Scripture, not least that one day the whole earth will be covered with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That was his intention when he put image, his image on man and woman. You are my image bearers, which is to say you represent me here on earth. Now fill it. You see how those two thoughts go together. You represent me. Now fill the earth, which is to say God's desire is that his glory would be manifest the whole world over. And part of that plan is the glorious institution of marriage. 
As we thought about recently in Matthew's gospel, he brings together one man and one woman in an exclusive and permanent relationship. As part of the overarching plan, it is the one relationship within which you can pursue sexual desire in such a way that the Lord is glorified. And if it's not that relationship, it is a sin pursue that relationship and all that is good and right about that institution and you are now on board with the plan. You are jumping in with God's overarching plan. You have Christ at the center of your marriage. You honor your wife. You honor your husband. You understand this is not arbitrary. The commands that come upon me as a husband, as a wife, as a single person, and the list goes on, all of the commands are not arbitrary, but they fit into the overarching plan. And as you submit to them and you connect them to what God is doing throughout redemptive history, how much joy there is to walk in a path of obedience. How wonderful it is to follow God's prescribed will. If you choose otherwise, you choose to pursue a different path. Don't expect that God is pleased with you. Don't expect that he will progress his plan through you. Know, ultimately, that the wicked will be destroyed for the choices they make. And so we see the story of this city called Sodom within the broader narrative. It was not the promised land. In fact, it was a land of wickedness. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? By no means. He will progress his plan through the righteous. But as it was a wicked city, it was right for him to destroy it. And that then leaves us with the question of Lot. What about this man who failed to trust, who escaped... And his daughters now are living with him in a cave. Perhaps, as we read that portion of the text, you were reminded of an earlier narrative in Genesis. Specifically, the story of Noah and his sons. That's not a coincidence. Moses tells us the story of Lot and his daughters in the likeness of the story of Noah and his sons. Consider, Lot emerges from a picture of utter destruction. Even look at the fact that the destruction is described as God raining down fire. That's a strange turn of phrase to talk about raining down fire, but it's a a word that makes us think back to the time when God flooded the whole earth. Lot emerges as the one head over the new humanity, as it were, in the likeness of Noah. And then, tragically, in the same way, there is this episode of drunkenness and the knowledge of Lot and his daughters in the same way that something happened between Noah and his son Ham. Whenever you read through Old Testament texts, one characteristic that you'll often see is just how repetitive they are. It's especially true of Genesis. It's true throughout the whole of the Old Testament. 
There are times where you read and you think, strangely, it feels like I've been here before. There's a sense of deja vu. Three times in Genesis you read, it was, she's not my wife, she's my sister. I often say to my students, if you were to read through First and Second Chronicles in its entirety, in one sitting, you would be bored. That's not the fault of the text. It's your fault. You don't know how to read it properly. The repetitious nature of Old Testament narrative texts is not an accident, nor is it an indicator of a primitive narrative. It's wonderfully rich, a wonderfully complex narrative, and it is often the case that through its repetitions, meaning is borne out. It's intentional that Lot is presented in the likeness of Noah. And every time you see a repetition within an Old Testament text, it is the narrator's invitation to you to simply compare and to contrast. I liken it to those coloring in sheets when you go into the restaurant and the waitress gives to the kids those sheets to color as you wait for your food. And you'll often see two images that at first glance look the same. And the idea is you look a bit closer and you start to notice the differences and you circle them. It's the same way that Old Testament narrative works. When you see repetitions, the narrator is asking you to compare and to contrast. And where there are differences is often where the meaning is to be found. So what's the difference between Lot and his daughters and Noah and his sons? Most evidently, the difference is that it concerns Lot's daughters, whereas the story of Noah was with his sons. So females and males would be the most obvious difference. It's more significant than you might think. When we read about Ham, looking upon Lot's nakedness, perhaps more going on there than Moses tells us, his son is then cursed. That is, the male bears the consequences for his sins. Ham, indirectly through his son Canaan, is cursed for his actions. But in Genesis, the daughters, the carriers of the seed, are responsible to their father or to their head, their husband. Lot's daughters don't bear the consequences for their sins so much here as Lot does. Which is to say, Lot's line will not be part of God's plan in redemptive history. Lot is bearing the consequences as his line is set aside. These two children, they give rise to two tribes. But those tribes have nothing to do with God's plan in redemptive history. They sit outside of his purposes. And so this is where, as it were, Moses draws a line under the story of Lot. We're not going to read about him hereafter. He's not close into the action of God's progression of his redemptive plan. He now is left behind. He is bearing the consequences for his decisions. Now, I want to be careful because, as some of you are already thinking, doesn't the New Testament tell me that Lot was righteous? And it does. In 2 Peter, we read, Lot was a righteous man. So there's a difficult text that we now have to reconcile with our reading of Genesis 18 and 19. 
And I would say when Peter writes that in his second epistle, he understands that righteousness in Genesis, uprightness, is a relative term. In the midst of all that was going on in Sodom, yes, Lot was righteous. He protested. He said to the men, do not do this. They acknowledged that he was a judge over them. Lot was very much at that point standing God himself. But as you stand back and consider the bigger picture, you see by no means was Lot consistently faithful. And here is where you start to observe just how complex is the web of moral choices that we make each and every day. Consider the story of Lot from the very introduction back in Genesis chapter 12. In 13, he chooses a different land. That's the sum total of his failure to trust. He chooses a different place to dwell. But you fast forward to chapters 18 and 19, and you see that he readily offers his daughters to these men. You see that when he's told of God's forthcoming judgment, he lingers. You see that his next of kin is destroyed as she looks back. And then you consider that his daughters thought it was appropriate to cause him to be drunk and to lie with him. Was he righteous relative to the Sodomites? Yes, he was. But he was a man who chose an unrighteous path. He is bearing the consequences for his sin it all began with him choosing another land. Understand that the moral implications in your life are far-reaching and complex. Never be so foolish so as to think that a sin pursued in one area of your life will not rear itself up in another area of your life. Don't ever think that you can keep your sin isolated or hidden or that a sin only relates to one area of responsibility, know and understand it will show itself all throughout your life. Lot chose a different land, and here he is in this sorry tale with his daughters at the end of chapter 19. And so God removes, as it were, his line from redemptive history. Is anything too difficult for the Lord Certainly not, but he progresses his plans through the righteous, and the unrighteous bear the consequences for their sin. Now, as I prayed earlier this morning, if we truly come to terms with that truth, we might despair. Certainly, I don't imagine that your sin today is anything like the sin on the pages of our Bibles this morning. But we all stand before God unrighteous. And it's on that count that we appeal to Christ, who is our righteousness. We appeal to Christ, who clothes us, who hides us in righteousness. You understand he is the only means by which you may escape the judgment of God. Your sin does not need to be as grievous as the sin in Genesis 18 and 19. 
If you have sinned in any way, which we all have, you stand before a holy God who will hold men accountable for their choices. And the only possible means by which you can escape judgment is by fleeing to Christ. He is our righteousness. If you're here this morning and you are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, God's judgment rests upon you. And at a time of his choosing, not yours, at a time of his choosing, you'll be made to face that judgment. And there is the free offer of salvation this morning handed to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You do not need to do anything. You don't need to work for it. You do not need to have earned it. You cannot. You cast yourself in full submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. You cast yourself in full acknowledgement of sin and crying out for His holiness and He will freely grant it to you. And no more will you face the judgment of God. You no longer live in fear of the day when you will stand before the judge. But your life thereafter is one of the utmost gratitude for the forgiveness that he grants at the cross and the righteousness that he bestows in Christ. And understand the magnificence of the cross is not limited only to your forgiveness of sins and a reception of an alien righteousness. More than that, as if it were possible, more than that, there is healing to be found at the cross. If you're trapped in any kind of sexual sin this morning, Understand the grace of the cross offers healing. Any form of unrighteousness, just as sin makes its mark on your life, there is healing at the cross. And as if that were not enough, there is more. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ grants to you forgiveness and righteousness, and healing, and a grace by which you can then live a life that honors Him. There is a grace that issues from the cross of Calvary that sustains all those who have put their faith in Christ and enables us to live lives of righteousness. Genuine righteousness, as we have set our mind to think about all the way through Matthew 5, genuine righteousness that God's grace will etch into your life so that whatever it is that you bring, whatever sins are true in your past, by God's grace you can move forward and live a holy life knowing the pleasure of obedience and seeing how God works through the righteous to the praise of his name. Would you pray with me now to close? Father, we thank you for our time together in your word this morning. We see 
your concern for holiness, certainly there is nothing too difficult for you. But that does not mean that you progress your plans through the wicked. Quite the opposite. Your delight is to use those who have rendered themselves holy unto you. The wicked will bear the consequences for their sin. I pray for anyone here who sits under your judgment, having not submitted to the saving gospel of Christ. Give them eyes to see the truth that you have appointed a day when the wicked will be made to face their creator. They will have no appeal in that day. There will be no excuses, no arguments, but now Today, there's a day out. There's a way out. There's a means by which they may escape judgment. The precious cross of Christ leads sinners to repentance. Give sinners faith in Jesus. Father, we praise your children who have received this gift. Help us to take seriously your desire for righteousness in our lives. May we be diligent to strive to honor you, always resting in your grace, feeding upon your grace as the very means by which we can obey. And as you conform us more and more to the image of your Son, we trust you will use us to further your plan until Christ returns. This is our prayer, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.